Welcome to Habits for Happiness with Lady Fuller. The path to happiness is paved with healthy habits. We spend much of our lives searching for happiness when the key we're looking for is right there inside of us. We can discover that key through habit change, which you're about to learn about. Now, here is your host, Lady Fuller. Welcome to Habits for Happiness, the show where we discuss habits you can employ in your daily life to make you happier. Here on Habits for Happiness today to talk about the habit of connection is Perry Zern and Danny Bassett, co-authors of the beautiful book, Curious Vines, The Power of Connection, that's due out in September of this year, actually September 6th, I just found out. So welcome, Perry and Danny. Thank you all for being here today. And Thanks for having us. Of course, of course, it's my pleasure and honor. And let me introduce you both. Um, Perry and Danny have amazing bios, so I'm just going to give you the summaries that they can talk about themselves more as we talk. But Perry and Danny are identical twins, and um, Perry Zern is Associate Professor of Philosophy at American University. He studies forces and histories of change, focusing on the power of curiosity, political resistance, and transgender life. Danny Bassett is the J. Peter, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to butcher this. Skur Kinich? Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Professor of Bioengineering at the University of Pennsylvania, American physicist and systems neuroscientist who was the youngest individual to be awarded a 2014 MacArthur Fellowship. Welcome to you both. Thank so, you so much. Why write a book about connection? Like of all the things that you guys have done in your lives, which is amazing um, and accomplished, why this topic? I think we found we've always been super curious individuals, and I think our curiosity has sort of fed on each other's. Um, so I think we've shared curiosity as a practice or as a habit of happiness, perhaps, um, from when we were quite young. But then, um, you know, we as identical twins, we needed to sort of develop our own senses of who we were. Mm. And so I went into philosophy and Danny went into physics um, and we traveled down those roads for for a while until we realized that actually we can come together and start to talk about the mind and specifically curiosity from these really wildly different places, but for, with the same heart, I think. Um, and so that's that's a short version of how we got to curiosity. Danny, I don't know if you want to add another thread to the story. Yeah, maybe just to add that in addition to connection being very germane to the way that this book came about for us, I think it's very central to how we think um, curiosity can be used by individual people in their daily lives. So um, curiosity is for, for us is much less about the gathering of independent bits of information, um, but about the connecting of those pieces of information um, into something bigger and something broader and the connecting of one person to another person. Um, so it's very relational. Our, our theory of curiosity is very relational, relational between ideas and relational between people. Oh, I love that. So in your work, which I was so privileged to get an advanced copy of, thank you, you talk about how curiosity connects and how that matters, right? And so what came up for me is like, and I think I know what you mean through your work, but tell the audience and the listeners, why does that matter? Why does it matter that we're connected? Yeah, well, curiosity has been really thought of as um, a, capa a capacity to acquire information so that I as an individual might have certain questions and then I go about acquiring information through my curiosity and I collect that information and take it home with me and I might do whatever it is that I do with it. It helps me live my life. It helps me progress in my career. It helps me whatever. Uh, but it's a very individualistic vision of what curiosity mm -hmm. is. And so our shift from that from that concept of curiosity as wanting to get or to acquire to instead curiosity as wanting to connect lets us really think about um, what we want to know as intimately tied with who we are in a community, in a social mm -hmm. setting. And that lets curiosity then have much greater meaning. It's less of this sort of empty I'll Google a question, I'll figure out the answer, and then I'll move out on to the next thing. It never meant anything to me, really. Right? Instead, it's, oh, when I'm curious, I really want to build a knowledge of my world with you. That's what curiosity really is. And why is it important to build that knowledge with others? Like, why is it important not to be individualists? Yeah, so I think that it's it's important because it affords us the possibility of change. Mm. Um, so um, 
if if you going back to the idea of picking up pieces of information um, and sort of you can imagine them as coins that you might gather up or, or little trinkets that you might gather up and you might stick them in a, in a bag. Um, but if you want to do something with them, you, you need to understand how one piece of information connects up to another piece of information. That's how we reason. It's how we infer or deduce. It's how we predict what might happen in the future or what a person might feel in the future. It's how we imagine how structures around us could be different in the future. Mm-hmm. All of that requires connecting pieces of information. Um, so the capacity for change intellectually or, or conceptually, mentally, um, is the depends upon these relationships, but the capacity for social change Mm -hmm. depends on the interactions between individuals. Um, So I, as a neuroscientist and physicist, focus a lot on what's happening in an individual mind um, and what kind of structures of knowledge we each build, Uh, but that's complemented by Perry's expertise in political philosophy and social Mm. change, um, which really captures these these questions of how groups of people come together um, to make something new in the future. Yeah, I mean, what I hear you saying is, and, and what's resonating for me is that, like the one of the one of the many beauties of your connection as twins and the different paths you've taken in life is that, um, you know, one of you has this sort of internal focus, right? And Danny, you're sort of, you know, looking at it as the brain, right? You talk about this connective tissue, and Perry, you have this sort of external focus, whereas the change and social change, and that's sort of the beauty of you guys even writing this book and conquering this topic together is that these two facets are extraordinarily important because one can't exist without the other yes. in order to create change, right? Yes, exactly. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and I think. Our, I was I was just gonna say our editor when we when we first started working um, with them had been worried that we wouldn't be able to thread those kind of different poles together, but we were convinced there is this organic connection. There is this um, kind of uh, waxing and waning of the conversation. Mm-hmm. The more we say, the more you head into the brain, the more you have to come back out into society and see how the brain is informed by society. But likewise, the more you head into society, you need to understand how the brain even works and how all of our brains work together. So um, I'm glad it comes across convincingly. This this it does, and, and you guys are connected, right? I mean, you you know you shared the womb. I am going to make an assumption. So as a result, you have this sort of like you know ethereal connection and this DNA connection, but you also have this ability to cover this topic from these two sort of different angles, which I think is awesome. But shifting a little bit, so we talked um, before we started about this concept of you know kids, as we know, are insanely curious and. Um, I've got a 10 and 12 year old myself and um, answering questions is part of my role as being a mother. <laughs> Sometimes I just say no before the question's even answered because <laughs> it's just easier asked, right? It's just easier to preempt. But in all seriousness, you know, I'm sure you know this, and but for listeners, you know, that may not have thought about this, our curiosity seems to disappear right? Somewhere in the growing up process. And my question is, why? Where does it go? Yeah, I think one answer is that it gets trained to do very specific sorts of things. Um, So I think we get trained to ask specific sorts of questions in school, questions that fit into whatever the curriculum is. And then we get trained to ask specific sorts of questions for our work, whatever our jobs are, Um, whether that is, you know, how do I get to work? How do I get home from work? What do I do at work? Or who do I need to work with in order to get things done? You know, just basic sorts of questions. All of our lives are filled with them, but they tend to be very directed, very trained and very habitual in not not the liberating way in which you talk about habits, but rather in this sort of sedimented, stuck way. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think when you talk about trying to regain a childlike curiosity, it's really trying to regain the flexibility of a curiosity that is one of the things we call um, undisciplined or, or freer in some sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that. and I think I think there are there are structures and expectations that that are brought into your personal space as you get older, um, and I think that 
uh, we talk a little bit about kind of the, the policing of curiosity is like, oh, no, that kind of question is not something you should, you know, that's not the right kind of question to ask in this space. There's a different set of questions we ask in this space that comes out very frequently um, in classrooms, you know, in this particular space. These are the kinds of classical traditional questions that we ask. Um, we don't ask these other ones. Um, Perry, you actually uh, had an experience about, you know, whether curiosity is even a, a question relevant for philosophy, right, in your educational experience. Maybe you could mention that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had I had an advisor who just said, you know, that's not a philosophical question. What is curiosity? <laughs> and I thought, but of course it is. <laughs> of course it's it is. It's actually like the basis of philosophy. It should which, be. Yeah. Which leads me to ask, like, what is the relationship between philosophy and curiosity? Yeah. I mean, I would say I would say that curiosity is the foundation of all the fields, but I, I do have a, a preference for my own, right? I think that philosophy is one of these, you know, big question sort of places where we get to ask, what does it mean to exist? What does it mean to even know something? What is, how should we interact ethically with one another? Like huge questions. And so if we can't come to those big questions with a, with a spirit of curiosity, I think we'll certainly fail to answer them well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, and what, what's the cost of us as a society for our, having limits on our curiosity? There's certainly a cost to science. Maybe I'll start there and then I want to hear what Perry thinks about, about society more broadly. But the cost for science is, is really a slowing of scientific inquiry and the pace of discovery. So if you can't ask questions about, you know, outside of the current boxes of traditional theories, then that will, that will tend to slow progress. Um, and that has important ramifications for technology, for the pace of medicine, um, for, uh, you know, our interaction with the, the uh, our earth, our world, the climate, et cetera. Mm. Um, so I think it has, it has huge ramifications, um, for, for science, but Perry. Yeah. I'd say for society more generally and in our interactions with one another, one of the costs of losing curiosity and the capacity to ask, um, deep and interesting and new questions is that we'll get stuck in the ways things already are. And the way in which things already are is typically run by people with a lot of privilege, right? Um, with a lot of money or, you know, the winners tell history, tell the story of history and, and not the losers, which means we end up not knowing or staying accountable to the questions of those who didn't, who didn't um, kind of win certain win certain areas of the of the world and so i think um what what we lose is the ability to hear these quieter questions these questions that deserve to be heard but didn't get on top of the world very quickly um and, and yet might actually hold the insights for what we need for the next generation yeah oh wow that's so powerful um and so in that vein how do we teach curiosity as something that's necessary because the cost is so great? I mean, I always get stuck with this one. Um, <laughs> like how to teach curiosity because, uh, you know, the, ver the, the first thing that happens when you say I'm coming in to teach you something is a student shuts down. Right. Mm. I don't, I don't, uh, or at least students like myself, uh, <laughs> you know, if you think I need to know this thing, I don't want to know it. Um, but, um, but I, no, I think that's, I say that facetiously and I, and I do tend to have that more rebellious spirit, but I think that students in general are, you know, they're, they're more frustrated with classes that they have to take versus the ones they are actually interested in, you know? So, so the question for me is less, how do I teach curiosity then? How do I facilitate the curiosity that's already there that the students bring in or that other people in the work environment already bring into the workplace? How do I facilitate that curiosity rather than squelch it as you were talking about before? Um, Danny, I don't know if you have want to talk about practical. Yeah, I think that um, I, I love this idea of of noticing what's inside someone else, what kind of curiosity is inside that other person, and then also you have an opportunity to um, display your practice of curiosity to them, and and in a way that allows mm. them to see that it might be different than theirs, and and celebrate the diversity of those those experiences and those practices. When you focus on listening and hearing and, and noticing the um, curiosity in someone else, I think that that's a really important um, approach that is, is made more possible by this connective theory that we have of curiosity. So, um, for example, 
you might, you know, a common way of, of thinking about curiosity in the sciences is that you would um, watch children in the classroom and you would see, you know, how, which child raises their hand really often, which child asks a lot of questions, um, which child sits at the front of the room. Um, and that child may be, you know, measured as, as having a high curiosity for those reasons, those external reasons. But of course, we can all think of the child who sits in the back of the classroom. Maybe it's not a child, maybe it's an adult <laughs> um, who sits in the back of the classroom, um, is quiet, doesn't ask questions, um, doesn't raise their hand for all kinds of reasons, all sorts of things that may be happening in their life, all sorts of different personality reasons, maybe neurodiversity, all sorts of things. Um, and it's not that that person is not curious. It's just that they're curious in a different way. They may be asking a thousand questions in their minds, but it doesn't come out and that's fine. Um, it doesn't mean that they're not curious. So I think noticing these different ways in which people can be curious and providing students with outlets for that curiosity that they feel you know, excited to engage in is, is really important. Um, yeah, so I just, I think that uh, understanding and celebrating this difference is very important. Yeah, it's, it's like the what comes up for me is this idea of like holding space, right? Just holding space for other people's curiosity and letting it be okay, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think um, also is an important counterpoint to t typical uh, scientific descriptions of curiosity that say, you know, there's sort of you're either curious or you're not curious or you're curious along one dimension. Um, but there's emerging work to suggest that we need to expand that to say there are multiple dimensions of curiosity, uh, multiple types of curiosity. And, and what uh, Perry talks about is multiple styles of curiosity. Yeah, I, I was going to talk about that next. So tell us about the three styles you talk about in your work, because the busybody, the hunter and the dancer I have here. So tell us more. Yeah, sure. Well, um, I mean, this work actually came out of I was um, preparing to talk to some high school artists about curiosity. And I thought, how can I talk about curiosity in a way that's visually stimulating, in a way that can kind of capture their imagination? And I thought, well, it would be nice if I had certain characters of curiosity. So I started to think about, well, are there, you know, particular people? You mentioned Benjamin Franklin in the before before we went on air, or um, are there people that uh, I would want to bring in as here are some icons or some characters mm -hmm. of curiosity, and the, and and that might light some fires. But then I, I I I went back to the books, really, as I typically do, and started thinking about just the history of Western thought, which is one of my specializations. And thinking, okay, well, wherever people talk about curiosity, what what are some of the implicit practices and indeed styles of curiosity? And so I came up with these three. The busybody, who's someone who just loves to know anything about everything or everything about anything, right? They just, they're very, they're wide open, sort of generalists, or they love, again, they love listening, right? You get, they're, they're ready for you to tell them anything and they'll go down any rabbit hole. And uh, th that's a lovely quality to have, a busybody style of curiosity. But then there's the hunter, who's much more focused typically has things they want to know already or subject areas they want to know a lot of things about and they typically stay there and if you're trying to talk about something else they're typically bored um, and that's okay too right we need folks who can really zero in um, somebody who's you know fixing the gas leak in my house I hope that you can focus on just that you know um, and then and then the third style is the dancer and the dancer is someone who is very creative is someone who who comes in and says, you know, they ask a lot of what if questions. It's not, you know, can I know a lot of different things or focus in on really one thing, but rather, wow, what what is the kind of the wildest thing I could imagine or put together in this moment? And then what would happen if I put those two things together in my mind or in the world? So the dancer typically takes these creative leaps of imagination, and and that's a third style of curiosity. And we had a wonderful chance of being able to test out these styles of curiosity in contemporary era because of course you might think well okay that's history that's the way people have thought about curiosity before but maybe we have to move on to the other things um but we have been able to sort of work through it in the contemporary stage danny i don't know if you want to talk about that yeah so this is work that was um uh, in collaboration with david leiden staley who's at the annenberg school of communication at penn and um what we did is that we had people 
uh, browse Wikipedia, which is an online encyclopedia, mm -hmm. and they browse Wikipedia for 15 minutes a day for 21 days. And what we were able to do is to look at each web page that they went to inside of Wikipedia and ask, mm -hmm. are those two things nearby conceptually or really far apart conceptually? Um, so for example, maybe people started on a web page about rhododendrons and then moved to a web page about um, oak leaf hydrangeas, which are both bushy, uh, uh, plants that you might put in front of your house. Mm. Uh, and so those two are really close together conceptually. That's a step that a hunter might typically use, a hunter style of curiosity. In contrast, you might have somebody who starts at the rhododendron and goes to the Queen of England and then goes to game shows. Those are wildly different concepts. That's me. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> so Don't look be... at my search history. You'd be very confused. <laughs> but you might have a reason for those. You mean maybe you have an analogical mind that, or a metaphor. You know, I have a monkey brain, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's a beautiful tree called the monkey puzzle tree. Okay. Here's my mind jumping in. Um, <laughs> monkey puzzle tree is an amazing, beautiful tree. If you haven't seen it before, um, it can live in the Philadelphia, well, the sort of pencil, the lower part of Pennsylvania and below. Um, where was I? Okay. okay. We were so, talking about Wikipedia and Wikipedia's <laughs> aggregate data that you went and found yes, exactly. the connection so there, between. So there are people who will, who will take these broader steps and those are the, the busybodies in, in the, um, in the world. So what we see is that the people vary hugely from some people who have much more busybody like curiosity to those who have much stronger hunter like curiosity. Um, and even their styles then can change a little bit from week to week. So we see that somebody who tends to be more busybody like will vary a little bit. Sometimes they'll move slightly toward hunter, slightly away. Somebody who tends to be a hunter sometimes will move slightly towards busy body, slightly away. Um, so there's, there's marked styles, but then there's also variability um, across weeks. Um, yeah, so this suggests that these um, styles from our ancient history are present today, even in uh, engaging in, in uh, technology that provides us with information. And are these styles familial? Like, do we learn them from our rearing or nature or nurture? <laughs> Which one? That's a great question. And I don't know the answer. Although we do talk a lot in the book about the practice of, of mentoring, of showing other people uh, your curiosity and also noticing the curiosity of people around you, as we were sort of mentioning earlier. And so I do think when I think back personally to the people who I have um, worked with closely on, on scholarly efforts, I can see certain kinds of curiosity that they have that I think I've, I've drawn from in my own life. I don't know, Perry, what do you think? Yeah, and I would definitely say, at least in our family, I I know some busybodies, I know some hunters, I know some dancers. So that's a, at least a correlative um, observation. Yeah, yeah, and and I I hate classifications because or dislike because I don't think they do us much justice. But is there one that we should be striving towards more than the other, or is are they all productive and helpful and beneficial in their own way? I mean, we certainly see them all as helpful and beneficial. Um, I think the ideal would be that we appreciate these styles of curiosity and perhaps many more um, in ourselves and, and in one another and are able to put them into practice in moments that mo they most aid us in whatever it is that we're trying to do. So if I'm trying to learn a new field, being a busybody is a great idea. Just read widely. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm trying to solve a particular problem, I need to focus and I need to be a hunter about it. If I um, need to change the conversation about something that's been really stuck for a while, I need to be a dancer. So I think in each case, this is these are wonderful uh, qualities in a person. And many of us have all three in some sense. Um, and we would we would love to encourage folks to notice those things and to kind of harness them uh, in their in their everyday life. Yeah, and we also don't think that those three are necessarily the only ones that people um, need to be focusing on. So at the end of our book, we also have um, 
an appendix of a, a curious bestiary. So it includes um, an additional many animals and the kinds of curiosity that those animals evince either scientifically um, in their animal life or through um, stories and legends um, in literature or in philosophy. And so each of those different animals also evinces a different type of curiosity. It's possible that people will notice themselves more in one of those animals than in the three archetypes that we were just describing. Or maybe they'll th think of some animal that's not even there um, uh, that they say, you know, I'm much more like a clam and <laughs> this is yeah. my clam curiosity, you know? Yeah. Well, you don't want to be the rock, right? Which isn't curious at all. I'm going to add that as the fourth style, which is the gray rock, the gray rock who's just not curious at all and staying in their own. We don't want that one. So maybe that's that's something we can add <laughs> in the appendix. But we are going to head to break. And when we do come back, I want to talk about the concept of judgment in relation to curiosity, because it is our natural propensity as human beings and animals to make meaning of things, but wanting to know what the relationship is about, can we be judgmental and be curious at the same time? Or are they two sort of opposing forces and how we can make the world better by understanding these concepts in a broader way. So hang tight, everyone. We'll be back and talking about the beautiful habit of curiosity and um, stay tuned. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Try out a free coaching session with your host, Lady Fuller, to learn more about our individualized and corporate coaching programs. Learn to drop bad habits and pick up healthier habits to live a healthier life. Email her at lady at happinessmba.com. That's L-A-D-Y at happinessmba.com. Or check out our coaching business at habits, the letter for happiness.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Want to reward clients, customers, or employees with a gift that will blow their socks off? We at International Gifting Company have your next corporate event covered. We carry 250 personalized gifts for on-site incentive events. Or we can create virtual gift boxes your employees and clients can receive at home. Contact us today for a quick and free proposal. We love to wow! Contact info at intlgiftingco.com or check out our webpage at intlgiftingco.com. It's your world. Motivate, change, succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to Habits for Happiness. To reach the show today, call into 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now, back to our program, and here again is Lady Fuller. Thanks, everyone. We are back. Uh, thanks, everyone, for hanging in there. And we're back talking about the habit of curiosity with the amazing Perry Zern and Danny Bassett. And I just wanted to talk about sort of this big topic, at least for me and my curious mind, of what is the relationship or can you be judgmental, which is sort of classifying and I see as contracting, and be curious with this idea that to me is more expansive? What how do those two things live in the same universe together? Yeah, I think this is a really powerful question. And it connects me back to uh, my prior book on curiosity, which is called Curiosity and Power. And in it, one of the things I argue is that curiosity has different formations. It, it, it gains different shapes 
in different people and along the way. And I think sometimes we practice, if curiosity is simply asking questions, I think that there can be judgmental questions and that, um, or that, yeah, being judged, when we are being judgmental, sometimes we ask certain questions in order to prove that we're right about our assessment of something. Um, but I think in this context, I would say that that kind of curiosity is not a liberating curiosity. It's not a free curiosity. It's not, as you would describe, a curiosity that um, supports happiness. Um, so I don't know. I think that's what I would say, that there are forms of curiosity that can be practiced by judgmental people or in judgmental moments, but that they're not the ones that we're trying to cultivate. Uh, Danny, I don't know if you want to take it in a different direction, though. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that those points are are really good. I also sometimes ask myself, you know, what is it that I am seeking when I am curious? And am I seeking clarity? Uh, sometimes if I'm seeking clarity, that means that I do want to categorize or I do want to um, isolate ideas or I, I want to um, distinguish something from something else. And all of these kind of more analytical um processes can be can be great because they do provide me with clarity they can also be harmful if that degree of categorization or that degree of analysis or the degree of separation isn't really true to what's in front of me um, I think that's that's definitely true in science when we try to simplify the story or separate out pieces that really shouldn't be separated but maybe what's more common as an experience um, for us as humans is is in relation to one another um, rather than you know categorizing one another or or distinguishing this person from that person or isolating concepts or or traits that we think somebody has or doesn't have so i think we i i want to encourage myself to be curious in a way that is happy for things to be messy, um, <laughs> happy for it to be really noisy, right? And for for things to not be perfect and not be clear. And and um, that's something that that definitely, as a scientist, I find is is always sort of in tension with the um, way in which I've been trained to think and the kinds of information that I've been trained to seek. Yeah, I love that. This idea of letting it be messy, which in a lot of ways, you know, Danny is almost like the antithesis of being a scientist, right? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> is, is they sort of <laughs> don't live in the same hemisphere. Although I guess the ability to test and, and have something go wrong and then iterate is part of the process, right? The scientific process. But, you know, so, you know, in current times, we are faced with a barrage of judgment that leaves us not curious and for society, right? But it comes from our brains. And like, what's the answer? How do we make that shift to being more open, tolerant? You can choose the word here, allowing of others to be whoever they are and us to be, you know, whoever we are. I think we really have to lean into listening, which I know is something that you care a lot about. But um, curiosity has for centuries really been thought about as um, connected to the eyes. So I can I can discern, I can separate with my eyes that this is this and this is that, and I can therefore become a scientist and then really separate things into different, um, different elements, for example, right? And it's all through observation. It's all through ob observing and deciding and judging. Um, that's how curiosity, that's the sense one of our senses that curiosity has been most connected to historically, but I really think we need to turn to the ears and I think we need to resituate, rehome our curiosity in our ears in some sense and, and start listening. And when we listen, what's, what's, what's incredible about when we listen is that we can't actually separate all of the sounds from one another. They are always happening together. And mm -hmm. sure, we, we can attend to one or another and pull some forward a little bit, but it's all there. It's all there all the time. Whereas with our eyes, you know, we can focus, we can get something so close to our eyes that it's all we see. So if I, you know, I put my thumb up to my eyes close enough, it'll be the only thing I can see. You can never do that with your ears. Um, so mm. I think the ears demand this attentiveness to an ambiguous, noisy world in which a lot of different perspectives are consistently kind of presenting themselves. Isn't there an, an ancient archetype of curiosity that uh, has 
wears a robe um, with that's related to. Yeah, yeah, right. So there's an iconographer, ninth um, century iconographer, I believe, Cesar Ripa, who um, developed an icon of curiosity. So a picture of curiosity, and and this this picture of curiosity is a woman in who has sort of her hair is kind of standing on end, um, and she's got wings like angel wings, but then she's wearing a robe of some kind on which there are giant ears and giant frogs. And at the time, so this is in Italy, right? This is this is kind of a Catholic Italy, ninth century. Um, and the, at the time, the frogs were because of the eyes, because frogs were considered to have big eyes that could mm -hmm. see in, further than our eyes can, because ours are set further in. Um, so the eyes, but then these ears, there's just human ears on this robe real actual human ears on this rope for who knows what like this i'm not sure this person should have had the job of iconography but he did uh, but it's but it's one of the few times in which in the ancient sort of literatures we th we, we see curiosity connected to ears and to listening and to the importance of that yeah i love this so much so what's coming up for me is this concept of you know, our ears, I love this idea where if you put your thumb close to your eyes, it almost gets blurry, right? Because of sort of depth perception, but that our ears don't have that level of depth perception. Our ears can actually um, collect more, if you will, um, listen differently, right? Than our eyes can see. And which leads me to this, this understanding that, you know, our intuition is where a lot of our curiosity lives. So in our ability to listen to it, and so what's the relationship between our curiosity and our intuition? We talk a little bit about, um, in the book, we talk a little bit about the importance or the relevance of curiosity when we have hunches, which I guess, you know, and intuition. That's intuition, often, yes. Right? You know, when we have a hunch that something might be there. Um, and part of what we think is happening there from a scientific perspective is that um, we are building up these structures of information and, and the, the, we leave holes sometimes where, you know, we know that there's this, ex this piece of information exists on one side of the hole, another piece of information exists on the other side of the hole, and there's, we don't know what's inside, but we have a hunch, we have an intuition that something must be there because of the structure of information around it. Um, and I think it's important that helps us to know where to ask questions, but I think we also need to um, be careful about assuming that we know what's inside. This is particularly relevant to your earlier questions about judgment and, and social curiosity. So I might see somebody do something something and think, I think there's a reason I have a hunch. I have an intuition that there's a reason that person did that thing. Um, and that could motivate me to ask a question, but maybe I should ask the question in a way that leaves open what the answer is, not assuming I know what their motivation is, even though I have a hunch or not assuming I know what's driving them, but saying, you performed this action. I'm curious what drove you to do that. Um, and because that it's, Hunches and intuitions are great, but I think we want to leave a lot of room for other people to have answers, um, to have modes of being that are wildly different than what we assume. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess one of my earlier questions about this idea of judgment is like, how do we get to society as a place where we allow everyone to be curious in their own right? Yeah. I mean, I like I like what Danny pointed to to suggest that we hunches hunches are informed um, by the knowledge that we already have, and yet, therefore, because the knowledge that we already have may be biased in some way, we have to have a a kind of sensitiveness to toward our own hunches and be willing to kind of hold them with an open hand. But in the same way, I think we do need to get more in touch with our intuitions too. So I teach curiosity classes and I will often ask students when the last when was the last time you were curious and I remember one student in particular said I think it was like three years ago and I stopped you know I wanted to say excuse me I gotta go cry in the restroom um, <laughs> seriously but, like how old are you you know what I mean I gosh know, I know but then I thought oh my goodness you're missing out on all your curiosity that's not surely been happening this whole time and so how is it that we are mysteries to ourselves in that sense um, we need to get to know 
I think I think it's important to sort of sit back and say, wow, well, how am I curious and what have I been curious about? What have I tried to, to learn um, in kind of normal ways, looking it up online or not, or uh, less normal ways, maybe asking somebody or or exploring a relationship or trying out a new skill or and and just get uh, get more kind of comfortable with the fact that I am already a curious being and those curiosities are in, sort of intuitively guiding me sometimes mm-hmm. and I think um, I think that's also like learning to listen to you <laughs> is yeah. also important right we need to we need to be crossing these these boundaries between each other and also um, within our own selves because we are we are I think often mysteries to ourselves. And does that mean that we need to let go of as a society that we know? Yes. I mean, yes. I mean, we, you know, it's, it's yeah. bring, the idea of control is bouncing around my curious head, right? Because we judge and classify in order to have some semblance of control over what we perceive we can have control over. But the truth be known is we have very little control over almost everything. So, therefore, you know, sort of being curious is also admitting that to some degree. Yeah. And we, we have, we've talked quite a bit about the longer we're in our fields, right? Our job is to create, create knowledge. That's our job Mm -hmm. as professors and scholars. And um, the longer we're in our fields, we know that, I mean, we're pushing forward conversations about what might be true, but we're pretty sure that, you know, people in the future will look back at our work or people today will look at our work and say, no, you've missed it. You know, I'm sure we've missed it. I'm sure we've missed the thing that we're trying to describe yeah. right now. I think that's true of every scholar ever. Um, yeah. So, I mean, part of the work in the, it, part of the thing we do in the book is we also talk about cracks and the important, the importance of sitting with the reality that our knowledge cracks. Yeah. Well, I'm not implying that you all don't know. I'm just implying that we don't know what's going to happen around the next corner. More like our ability to have control over, you know, events of the world to some degree. I think we all have influence, of course, and obviously can create knowledge. But this idea that I think the human brain wants to classify and holds on to being righteous, which is this, you know, not a great trait of us as humans, is this, it's like we, if we're righteous, we're not very curious, right? You can't really have one without the other, which leads me to this idea of like, do you guys think with your beautiful research that all of the great minds up until today, including you both, are do they all share this ability to be curious? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think we all share the ability to be curious, definitely. Um, but I also... And I think that that's exercised or practiced really differently or to different degrees in different people. Um, And I also, as you've been talking, I've been wondering if if it's important to hold intention, um, you know, recognizing that we don't know and being kind of open handed with with what we would claim. And yet um, having very clear hopes and goals which you might be able to specify very, very exactly, um, or maybe not exactly, but I'm particularly thinking about people who are from marginalized identities who can tell that societal structures are composed in a way that is unfair for that group and really hope uh, for a very specific future in which things are different in very specific ways, mm-hmm. um, including, you know, where somebody can ride on a bus, for example, if we go back yes. to a little bit of history, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that it fe- that feels important to hold intention that there are there, there should there needs to be a place for people um, to recognize injustices and to be very specific about what they hope for in the future. Uh, I don't know, Perry, if that this is more on your end of expertise than mine. Yeah, absolutely. So how can we encourage? curiosity and commitment perhaps as opposed to curiosity and righteousness mm. Um, mm. um not you know not a i know better than you and your ideas are worthless sort of thing which i does indeed i think shut down curiosity um but rather i want to know i'm open to knowing i i know i will always learn 
from my own kind of group's history and our future and other folks' histories and futures. Um, but right now, with what I know right now and with the commitments and the loves and the dreams I have right now, this is where I hope to go and this is what I think is true. If we can have that balance. Yeah, no, I love that. And Danny, I think it's important to note that I didn't mean that if we sort of are Pollyanna and say like, we have no control over anything, I'm going to jump on a plane and spend my life savings and go to wherever tomorrow, but more like, um, I don't know everything. So therefore I will leave space for everyone else to be whomever they are more of in a tolerance way. Mm. Um, But I do think it's incredibly important for us to have hopes and dreams and goals and intents and, and to stick to those. And I would say the most, the things that I come across in my coaching, which is interesting about curiosity is people are very, very, very righteous about what they don't want in their lives, but they have zero concept of what they actually want. They haven't actually given themselves permission to think about what's possible. And that's where, for me, curiosity comes in because I believe Sounds very woo-woo and not scientific, but I believe in visioning. I believe I write down the biggest things that could happen in my day. And then I let them like sort of drop into my subconscious or whatever and go about my day. And oftentimes they happen because I've just stated the intention and I've, you know, put it somewhere and I've written it down and I've envisioned it. And I know exactly what that is and it will show up for me in some form which sounds very woo-woo, I understand. But the point is, is that I give it over to my subconscious somehow, right? And then I realize that like the way and form in which that will happen, sometimes I don't have control over or the timeline or whatever else, but you know, that I'm curious enough to let there's something else going on that maybe isn't all me. I don't know. Um, But that the things that I hold tight to tend to not happen for me. That's so interesting. I I also I love that idea that that it may be more difficult or we may need more encouragement to identify the things we want. Uh, and that yeah, it, because- it's easy to say the things we don't want, but that that there's more room for us to articulate, to think about, and to listen to ourselves about um what it is we could hope for. Yeah, because I think that this idea, like, so if we're looking at like scientific data, like we have data for the stuff that we don't want because we've lived it. We we can say with confidence, I've done that and I don't want to do that. But sometimes it's harder for us to envision or be curious about the things that might not have happened to us yet. Mm -hmm. This reminds me of the early modern philosophers uh, were the, some of the few philosophers who thought about curiosity and hope together and they said they actually argue that curiosity is necessarily hopeful because it is anticipatory Mm. right you you have you have to anticipate a that there's something to know and b that you might be able to know it um and therefore it is intrinsically hopeful oh i love that so much And I want to switch topics if we can just a little bit, because I deal with in my own coaching practice, and I know a lot of listeners, you know, to some degree, we all have a level of trauma, childhood trauma, whatever it is. Um, I have my own, right? But, you know, what is the relationship between if we're traumatized as an early child, are we less curious? Is there a relationship there between trauma and curiosity? I don't know of any scientific studies that very clearly connect those two things together, but I think that um, it's it would be definitely really interesting to do. Maybe yeah. conceptually, Perry, you were about to say something. I was also just going to go kind of conceptually. So this isn't, yeah, from research or anything, but um, more from personal experience, I do think that it can trauma can certainly shut down our uh, capacities often to imagine or to reach for things because of whatever we've experienced um, may have punished that ability to reach. Mm. But, but I think, so I do think there's a limiting force in trauma, but I also think that um, those of us who have experienced trauma also have other questions, deeper questions can kind of turn a corner on certain things because of where we've been pushed, I think. And so I want to also say that there's more capacity for certain kinds of curiosity or questions there too, um, that can be facilitated by 
healing and growing as well. Mm, I love that. So, and then what's the relationship between curiosity and happiness? Are happy people happier people more curious? Are curious people more happy? Yes, there is evidence that there is a relationship. <laughs> My between, favorite topic, being happy. <laughs> between curiosity and happiness and, and flourishing and well-being. Um, I think what we don't yet uh, have clarity on um, from the scientific research perspective is, is which came first or how they are related. So could you drive um, greater happiness by being more curious? Or if you're more happy, will you end up being more curious? Or does it go both ways? Do they, mm-hmm. Is there a feedback loop that they both influence one another as you move through your life? Um, so those are kind of open questions in the field right now. But what we do know is that they're certainly related. Yes. So because they are related and because you guys have given us such beautiful information today, I want to just ask if people listening want to instill a habit of curiosity and sort of fold it into their daily life, where would they start? I love starting with walking. Um, And I take this both from my own love of walking and interest in walking literatures, but also a good friend of ours, actually, Lynn Borton, who runs a podcast called Choose to be Curious. Mm. Uh, And so it's all about um, practices that you can can start start right now, habits of curiosity. And and she often talks about walking Um, and walking not in the way that you walk to a store because you got to get something. You don't have time, blah, 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 you know, but walking to invite. Um, to invite new experiences and new observations and new feelings. Mm, Yeah. So sort of this idea of like just walking or even participating in activities that don't have a maybe generalized purpose, right? Mm -hmm. Being, not doing. Yes. 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 (laughs) (laughs) So Perry and Danny, if people want to find your book, and as we close or find more of you, if they want to book you for speaking engagements or whatnot, how can they find more of either of you? The book is available from MIT Press uh, and also from Amazon or from uh, your local bookstore starting September 6th. Fabulous. And personal websites, just so people, if they want to ask you more questions or find out more about you all. Yeah, they can jump on perryzern.com if they want to uh, take a look at me. and. Danny Bassett's lab is a quick Google away. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you guys so, so much for being here. I could talk to you both all day long. And thanks for our audience for listening. And next week, please join us for another riveting habit that can potentially change your life. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you for tuning in to Habits for Happiness. Please join Lady Fuller for another edition of the program next Friday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, discover how to find your new happy place.